Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Uh, today, uh, we continue uh, on the heels of that joy. We continue with our uh, sermon series called The Talents. We're in week four, and what we've been doing for three weeks and now four weeks is we've been walking through uh, the parable of the talents. Jesus tells this story in the midst of talking about the end times, the end of the world is coming, the end of my life is coming, and right in the middle of all these stories about what's about to be the end, he tells this kind of quizzical story about a master who leaves money for some servants and what they do with it. It's a story about trust and inheritance and serving. It's a story that uses money as a way to, to, to get a larger principle out. And so what we've said is he, Jesus uses money often um, for a lot of reasons. One of them is you can't wiggle out of money. It's very black and white. Money is, is, is money. A dollar is a dollar. You can't say, yeah, but I feel like it's less. It's, it is what it is. And we can't wiggle out of those principles. And so we're going to look at it today actually um, for what it is. We've talked about time, and we've talked about your skills, your gifts, your talents, and today we're actually going to talk about the aspect of treasure, your resources, whatever those might be, and how this parable relates to that. So let's read the parable again. We're going to refresh ourselves, read the parable in full, and then we'll get into it. Matthew 25, verse 14. You can read along on the screen if you'd like. Jesus says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward and he said, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward and he said, master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have at least received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance." But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So like I said, we've unpacked this parable in a few different directions. Some really simple principles that aren't unique to money. God has blessed you with time. God has given you life. God has given you breath. He's given you time. What are you doing with it? God has given you gifts, talents, skills. What are you doing with them? God has also entrusted you with financial resources. And for some people, that's money. For some people, it's uh, equipment. For others, it might be property. God has given you physical, hard assets, real things that can be leveraged and used in the kingdom. 
And he, he's given us financial resources with the expectation that knowing him, knowing the master's business, to, to kind of pull from the parable, that knowing the master's business, that you'll provide a return on that investment. It doesn't tell you how specifically either. The parable doesn't uh, give a prescription of this is what you do with the, the talents that I've given you. So one opened a business and one bought Apple stock and one, you know, it doesn't say it. It just says they all provided uh, the return that they provided in the way they did it. So all we know uh, about the first two is that they returned 100% on their investment. They were given certain resources, and when the master returned, they had 100% return on that investment. And then the third one, who given the one talent, his return was to bury it in the ground and hand the one talent back. That's what we know. What we know about that is that the one talent strategy was not a popular strategy. It says the master gave to each according to his ability, which is an interesting phrase to kind of sneak in there. Jesus doesn't speak on accident. This isn't a coincidence. Jesus says the master had given to each according to his ability, which sometimes people will come into my office and they'll say things like, I just don't know why I can't get ahead, or I don't know why, you know, we work really hard, but we always seem to end up in the same financial space. And this is actually comforting me that he gives to each according to his ability that somebody may be capable of handling a billion dollars. I may not be. I, I would like to be, but maybe I wouldn't like to be. Maybe I don't want the responsibility of that. Maybe that's not for me. And so to each their ability, God gives out these talents. The master gives the talents each to their ability, which is, is also comforting in that if you gave, let's say you gave a 10-year-old a billion dollars, what would you expect the return on that to be? A lot of Skittles and Pokemon cards, right? <laughs> But I gave you, a, you know, you don't want to be given something you don't have the ability to, to do well with. And so we have to consider that that's God's grace in our life that he gives according to our ability. I love how this also roots out competition. The story roots out competition, which is something when we get into the, the, the land of treasure, the land of, of finances, of money, we, in a capitalistic society, we get very competitive. We've talked about comparison to the thief of joy. We've talked about how that can really create some problems in our lives. But there's no competition that I see here. The one who had two talents returned two talents. The one who had five talents returned five talents. The reward for each was enter into the joy of your master. Each got the same reward, even though their net results were different. Now, their only return on investment was 100%. You see, it's the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one had two and one had five. So one ended up with 10 and one ended up with four under their management. And the master's joy was equal with both, and the reward for both was equal. And so if you have been given according to your ability, you're not expected to show the same return on investment as Bill Gates. You've been invited to show a return on the investment you've been given, which removes competition, which removes comparison. The master is simply judging on what you were given, not on what you were given in comparison to others. God's not judging your net profits. God is judging your faithfulness to work with what he's given you. So I'll be plain and say that Scripture is pretty clear about this. I don't want to dance around the idea that God desires for you to be generous with the resources at your disposal. The, the Bible's very clear. God desires for you to be generous with the resources at your disposal. And when we talk resources, we can bundle it all together, your time and your talent and your treasure. Whatever He's entrusted you with, God desires for you to be generous with it. So whether that's your home, are you hospitable, or cash, are you generous? or just stuff, and someone asks to borrow something you really like. God wants you to live generously, not under compulsion. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, each one 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is getting rid of the idea that we give out of obligation. We're not going to give because uh, we're obligated to. God, God's not interested in your money. God of the universe doesn't need your money. The God of the universe doesn't need our service. He doesn't need the sermon. He doesn't need any of this. He is complete and full in and of himself. He invites us to participate in his redeeming, transforming work. And as a result, we get to share in his fullness. We get to share in his overflow. It's always an invitation for us into more. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to obligate us and, and compel us into some sort of compulsory giving scheme. He loves a cheerful giver. This example from my life, uh, we had our roof redone a couple years ago. Our roofer took on the job and it was kind of, I mean, it's still sort of happening. Remember prices for everything spiked kind of right post COVID and everything was like a billion dollars. And so our roofer gave us this quote and he shows up and, and we were like, where's your crew? And he goes, well, they all quit. Okay. We have a ranch style house with a detached garage. There's a lot of roof happening. And, um, we're like, it's a lot of roof, though. And he goes, yeah, I mean, I can do it by myself. I've done it before. I can figure it out. We're like, why did they quit? And he said they wanted more money, and I offered them $35 an hour each, and they all left anyway. And I went, oh, can I be on your team? You know, can I come roof with you? So he gets started roofing, and as you might imagine, one person doing a roof by themselves is pretty slow going. In the middle of doing our roof, his grandmother in New Jersey passes away. And he says, so I'm going to have to go tend to this. We said, absolutely, go. And he does what a roofer might do in the middle of a roofing job. And he had done the most part of our house, but the garage was still not done. And so he gets a bunch of tarps and he starts laying them out. And we said, are you sure? And he goes, I'm pretty sure. So then it rained and the, uh, the garage was pretty wet inside as uh, he wasn't sure. And so the tarps didn't hold. And now we have water in the, like just drip, you just, it's waterfalls. And as we're kind of working through what do we do, we have a few friends we call about this. We have people who know stuff. We're like, what should we do? And one of the people we call is Mark Stratman. And Mark comes by, not because he's going to save the day. He just literally comes by because he uh, has a contracting business with his giant dehumidifier and his giant fan and helps us get it all figured out and helps us get it all work. And he didn't come as our contractor friend. He came as our friend. And he has these resources. He has, these, he has this treasure in the form of like industrial equipment for these sorts of jobs. And without us asking, we were just going, hey, what do we do? Before he could answer with what we should do, he just showed up and shared the thing he had to share. That's the picture of what it looks like to give generously, not under compulsion. We didn't say, hey, you have to do this. You've been our friend and you owe us. We also didn't say you're obligated because we're gonna pay you. He just showed up to give cheerfully, quietly blessed us with his treasure. Happens all the time around here. People uh, will email me, call me, come in my office, and they'll say, we want to get money to certain people at church, but we don't want them to know it's from us. We've heard they've had a hard season, or we heard they've got medical expenses, or they're having a hard time, or whatever it is. And people will say, is there a way I can get them money anonymously through the church? And we figure it out. These are people who are not obligated. No one's going to know about it. They're not doing it for the reward of it. They just want to give, and they want to give generously. It's a beautiful thing. Where's the trap, though? We feel like there must be a trap here somewhere. The trap is this. On, on either end, there's two ditches on the road of generosity. One, one ditch is obligation. We've kind of hinted, like, what does that look like? You, you don't want to give out of obligation. The second side, the second ditch on that road, if you go too far the other way, is gratification. 
I would explain it this way. If I ask a child to clean their room, some of you have done this before. Some of you have been children. We've all been children. Clean your room. If they do it, they, it requires me to just yell and scream and pound the floor and get in there and clean your room and nothing. I'm taking away everything. Clean your room. If you do it that way, that doesn't feel like a real cheerful moment. That doesn't feel like they did a great job cleaning the room. If I have to yell about it, what's the good in that? There's no gift to me that you cleaned your room. That was a hassle for me. On the other end, if they cheerfully clean their room and then come out and go, how about 20 bucks for Starbucks? I mean, I did clean my room after all. Well, that's the other ditch. So one is obligation. I did it because you made me. The other is I did it for my own gratification. I figured if I did the thing that I was supposed to do, I'd get a reward on the other end. And that's not it. That's not what we're aiming for at all. It's not what the Bible paints as the picture of why we give. Because on either end, we have these false motivators. One is fear. Fear motivates us to give out of obligation. I better do it, otherwise I have to watch out for lightning strikes. The other side is this gratification. The, the motivation is really for, for my own selfish desires. I give because I read that it said, if I'm faithful with little, I'll get much. And so this could be a nice little investment scheme. What I want to nudge you towards today is cheerful non-compulsory giving. Not about getting money into the black boxes, so I can be really clear about that. This is not about you giving more money to Covenant Church. Scripture is clear, you should give to your local gathering, so do that. But it's bigger than that. I, what I want to try to convince you to do, I want to nudge you into to cheerful giving of your resources, your time and your talent and your treasure into the church, the capital C church, the local church whether that's through the pregnancy center, or that's through Young Life or Crew, whether that's um, through giving of your time to the nest, whether that's using your resources to help the Christian Academy, whatever that means, I want to nudge you into the cheerful giving towards the local church active in the world, like giving and living a generous life so as to bless God and his people, to bring his kingdom so what we're after is hearts that are about the kingdom. We're really about hearts that are kingdom-focused, gospel-centered hearts. And out of the overflow of a kingdom and gospel-centered heart, we'll have cheerful giving. Which is why I'm going to say something that some people will not have expected. It's okay for you to want more money. Like, it's okay for you to desire more money. It's okay for you to want to be rich. I've never said that out loud. A few of your eyebrows just leapt off your heads. This is not what he's saying. He wants me to give away my money. Why does he want me to make more money? It's okay for you to want to make more money. When we were living in South Africa, uh, in Johannesburg, we had a feeding scheme. And essentially, we gathered all the food we could get in the, the neighborhood. And then twice a week, we'd go down to the local uh, informal settlement and we would feed the children. Running this feeding scheme, we wanted to collect as much resource as we could so we could give the resource away to the children who were hungry. Now, some of us think it's, we shouldn't ever want more because that feels like it would be sinful but we only apply that to money. No one would have said, maybe you shouldn't want more food. Like, don't get more food for those children. Don't get more. Want less. Live simply. You'd say, no, you're running a feeding scheme. Get as much as you can because every extra pound of rice you get, every extra chicken you get goes into more and more bellies. You feed more and more people. You make a bigger and bigger impact. So you should want more when it comes to the generous thing you're trying to do. The reason we feel weird about it with money is because most of our hearts, if we're very honest, most of the time, aren't actually looking for more money for God. We're looking for more money for me. And so then we feel a guilt going, if I want more, it's actually pretty selfish. 
And what we're trying to do is twist that and say, if we're actually after God's generosity for our lives, then wanting more would be wanting more for God's generosity in our lives. I would say it this way, if our goal is to become generous with what we have, we should desire to grow what we have so as to become more generous. Why wouldn't, if you were a generous person who was funding the kingdom of God in your midst, helping widows and orphans, if you were doing the thing that the scripture says you're supposed to do, why wouldn't I want you to just be fabulously wealthy? Because your wealth overflows into kingdom activity everywhere. If we have the right heart, if we have gospel-centered life, then it's okay to want more. Some of you are still uncomfortable, and you're rightly thinking of 1 Timothy, so let's read it together. 1 Timothy chapter 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And some of you are playing the I told you so game. See, you said we, it's okay for us to want more, but this says if we want more, we're in trouble. The desire to be rich is a trap and a temptation. But what's the core desire? What's the motivation under what the scripture is saying? The core desire, is it wealth or generosity? Because if the core desire is to want personal wealth, then yeah, that's a temptation and a trap for you. If the core desire is to want to grow your wealth so as to be generous, maybe there's something different happening. Out of love for God or out of love for self, what is your desire? It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not the love of God, using money, but the love of money. I would say it's the lust for money. Scripturally, the word lust means over-desire. So you can lust after anything. It just means you want something good, but you want it more than you should. So when we talk about lust in a typical 2023 way, we talk about lust in a physical gratification sense. Lust just means you want a good thing, but you want it too much. It's over-desire. And so if God created good things, we want too much of them, that's where lust shows up. It can happen in any area. It can happen in food. It can happen in money. It can happen in anything. Entertainment, I want that too much. I have a lust for entertainment. I have a lust, you people have a lust for life. I have an over-desire to travel the world. So the question becomes, what is this desire about? Is it for wealth, for my own personal security? Is it for uh, stuff that I might grow my status? What is the desire? If those are your motivations, then yeah, the desire for more is destruction knocking on your door. But the, the danger there is when we f- begin to fear money, when we make money, which is neutral, money is neutral, a dollar is neutral, a dollar given to a good cause is a good thing, a dollar given to a bad cause is a bad thing, a dollar is neutral. When we begin to fear money itself or fear wealth itself, what we have done is elevated it to a place it doesn't deserve. We overreact, and then we tap out of the money game altogether. We give our obligated percentage that we feel like we have to, but we don't really want to look, and I don't really want to be striving, and I think I, think I was told that Jesus wants me to be poor, and I think I'm just that simpler that way. I don't have to deal with it. I don't want the pressure. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to manage it. I don't want to invest it. I just, can it just be simpler? Because I don't like the temptation. I don't like the idea that it's the root of all evil. I don't like that. And yet, if you think about the life lived that way, with one eye closed, trying to keep it at a distance, that life leads to the parable of the one with one talent who simply buried it. I don't want to think about this. 
This money thing seems risky to me. This money thing seems odd to me. This money thing, I don't know. I don't know if I want to, ooh, this seems like a lot. I'm going to bury it. I'll just have it ready when the master returns. If we're afraid of money, if we demonize money, what we end up doing is living the buried life. And we got to be careful. He says, Lord, I know you don't suffer fools. That's not the, ma- the answer the master was after. Jesus' words help us here. Luke 16, 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he hates the one and loves the other, or he's devoted to the one and despises the other. But you cannot serve God and money. This is instructive teaching from Jesus. It's the heart of where we're trying to go today. I would say it this way. The role of money in your life is defined by the master in your life. The role of money in your life is defined by the master in your life. We should want to grow in generosity. We should want to bless more people with resources, whatever those resources look like. But the role of those resources, of your time and your talent, your treasure, the role of those things in your life will be defined by the ultimate master in your life. So you should make the most of your time. We've talked about this. Or make the most of your skills and your talent. We want you to deploy your talent, to leverage your days, to leverage your time, to leverage your network. We want you to leverage your life to make much of God, to make the most of your treasure, to grow and develop and deploy all your resources, to set the captives free and bless the down and out and love on the hurting and feed the hungry. And we, we want these things. And we want to reject the temptation for the love of money or to corrupt the gospel as a wealth scheme. So, right, I said, it's okay for you to want more money, and I'll be real careful to say on the other end, the prosperity gospel is some nonsense. We don't subscribe to that either. It goes like this, that if you're faithful, like um, they'd say, if you're faithful with little, God will trust you with much. If you're faithful, especially by giving to the church financially, the, the prosperity gospel says, well, then at that point, God will bless you materially. I would just say it's a bad theological reading of faithful with little, much is given. It's just a bad reading. Now, the other places people will point to, we have a different discussion, a different argument, a different day. What we see in the Bible is those who are faithful are all given more responsibility. Yeah. And for some, that is wealth. For some, that is, hey, you've been faithful with this aspect of your life. Let me give you more of it. That's God's business. But the servants who don't own anything, look at the parable. The servants are not owners. They're stewards of the master's. And they're faithful with a little. And what is happening after that? The master says, I will now entrust you with much. I've given you more of something, but it's still not yours. It's mine. It's more responsibility. It's more pressure. It's more. I'm giving you more. It doesn't promise anything uh, in the material world. If you watch, track the, the disciples, Jesus' first followers, his, his best friends, as, as you follow their life after Jesus is resurrected, and they don't end well. They don't end in lavish temples and, and palaces. Stephen is stoned and Peter's crucified upside down. They don't end in material prosperity. So we don't have the evidence that this is a, a one-to-one rule. And if you hear somebody say, if you just give to the church, God's going to bless you with more money, that's not in the Bible. Now, for some who've been faithful, God will bless abundantly because they're faithful and generous and they're gonna, they, they've earned that additional pressure. But it doesn't work as a one-to-one. It's not a formula to get rich. You might get rich, and you might just be generous in the middle class. The Bible teaches that everything belongs to God. You can read that in a lot of places. Everything, the world, everything in it, everything created belongs to Him. So then we have to, again, check our motivations. 
is what I'm after really a cloaked love of money? If the role of money is defined by your master, I would say it a different way. Your life always pursues your God. Your life will always seek more of what you worship. So the, you want to know what you worship, what do you spend the most time thinking about? What do you spend the most time seeking? What do you spend the most time chasing? What do you spend, when, you're, when your mind is free, when your heart is free, what are, you, what are you thinking about? What are you scheming towards? What are you working on? Your life will always seek more of what you worship. So if it's always another strategy to make more money, you've got to ask some hard questions. If you worship money, God then can become a tool in your pursuit of more money. And that's a dangerous place to be. If you worship money, God becomes a tool in your pursuit of more money. What we're aiming for is something really different. I want you to love Jesus and chase him with your whole life. I want to come back to Paul's words to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay, but what does that mean for the rich? Uh, I've sat through a lot of sermons where that passage is read. I've never heard somebody read a little bit further down the page. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. I would love for people who love Jesus and chase them with their whole life to be super wealthy. I would love that because they're going to use that for the kingdom of God. Because people with great resources are going to make wild impact if their heart is truly his. They're going to leverage their wealth to bless God and others. I love that. People who are truly following Jesus are not after a life of personal prosperity, but gospel generosity. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, be careful, even though you who are rich and who Paul is talking to is different than, than us. I would argue, and you want to zoom out globally, you are rich. You're just rich. You can go around the world, we can do average incomes above the 8 billion people on earth, and you are in the top 5%. You are the richest people on earth. And he says, be careful not to fall in love with the richness itself. Be careful not to grow haughty with the richness itself. Instead, use those riches to bring what's eternal. Use those riches, those, those bits and pieces that will rust, that will go away, that don't live on in eternity. Use those to make eternal impact. That's the life of beauty. That's what's truly life, he says. But it all comes down to what you worship. I said your life will always seek more of what you worship. I said if you worship money, God becomes a tool in your pursuit of more money. And what we want to really land on is this. If you worship God... Money becomes a tool in pursuit of more God. If you, if you can flip the sentence that way, then all of a sudden this becomes something I want to chase. If you worship God, if God is your center, then money becomes a tool to get more God out into the world. And that's a beautiful thing. More God amplified, more God glorified, more God magnified. I want more of that. And so you want to give, you want to give more money to, to a person who's God-centered? I'm for it. Because their aim is going to do the thing that God has set money into the world to do. More God in our lives, more God pouring from our lives. So the question for you has to be a diagnostic question. If you have to, if you have to answer, what is it that you worship? And then what is money's relation to that thing? 
For a lot of us, it isn't money. It's status or it's feeling like we made it in the world or it's feeling like I can keep up with my neighbors or it's a little bit of security. I just want enough to where I know I'm safe. For a lot of us, money is a tool to get some other place in our life, to get some other thing we're lacking. There's something missing. There's a hole in us and we think money can fill it. If I just work a few more hours, if I just get a second shift, if I just get another job, if I just get a better job, if I just get... We got a lot of people that are in school right now aiming for a job. And the big question everybody asks, whether you admit it or not, what everybody in school really wants to know is what job are you going to get? They're really saying, how much money are you going to make when you get out? Because you can make a lot of money. And what my heart for, for those folks in our community would be is they would say, I'm not real worried about that. God's going to give me to the measure of my abilities. What I want to do is make a huge impact for God. And if he should put me in a place where that includes a big paycheck, I guess I got more impact to make. But your aim has to be for the the heart of Christ. How do I overflow with Christ in the world? So what will it take for you to make the most of your time and your talent? And today as we talk about it, what will it take for you to make the most of the treasure God's put in your life to steward and grow and generously give the treasure that God has entrusted you with away? So we'll apply this. Maybe you're in debt. Say, look, I'm in debt. Credit card bills up to my eyeballs. I live paycheck to paycheck. This is a real nice idea, but this is impractical for me. If that's you, we have a way forward for you. Uh, Over the summer, we piloted our first Financial Peace University group, which is simply uh, the Dave Ramsey course that helps people get out of debt to make a financial plan for their life, to set a budget, and get going that way. If that's you, if you go, hey, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. I don't know where to even start. I would say, take this card and write financial peace on the bottom and turn it in. You can put it in the black boxes if you don't want to hand it to somebody and just write that on there. And we'll, we'll contact you and we'll start building our next class because we want you to have the financial freedom that you can begin to live generously. But if you're in debt up to your eyeballs, let's get you out of debt first, okay? That's a start. Maybe you have resources, but you don't know how to use them. You've never been confronted with how to use them in the kingdom. You have resources. I don't know what to do with them. We can introduce you to cheerful givers. We have some really generous cheerful givers in the church. They're making big impact with money. We can introduce you and you can begin to learn from a mentor who will help you understand how to use your finances in a kingdom way. We also have financial advisors. We have multiple financial advisors in the church that are Christ-centered, Christ followers, who can help you shape your money so you get more of the thing that you're desiring to have that you might bless others with it. We can help you with that too. But maybe you've realized something more profound today. Maybe you've realized that your life will always seek more of what you worship. And if you did honest accounting, you say, I don't know that I worship God. I like God. I rely on God. But man, the center of my life is something else. So we want to be real practical on the financial side, but I want to be really practical on the spiritual side. If you're in here and God is not the center, then none of this stuff really matters yet. We got to get you to a place where you understand that your life and the flourishing that God has designed you for happens when you are in right relationship with him. The flourishing that you were designed for happens when your heart is in right relationship with the heart of God, when you recognize your creator and you recognize that you are created for his glorification. And so if you realize you're worshiping something less than God and you want to change that, today is your day to change that. Friends, generosity was never more clear than on the cross. We celebrate that every week. We remember that every week. We take communion every week. 
as a way to bring the cross back to the forefront of our lives, to make sure we never get lost on where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing. So I'm going to invite the band back up, and I'm going to ask them to come and and prepare. As they do so, we consider what's on the table as I tell you, what does it mean to worship God in generosity? Jesus made the first move of generosity on the cross. Well, we learn from the Last Supper as he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which will be broken for you. So when we take bread off the table, we're taking the symbolic representation of what Jesus did for us that knowing that there was a gap between us because of our sin, Jesus said, let me be broken as the sacrifice that you might be made whole. We take that same bread, we dip it into the cup. The cup is it's just grape juice, but it represents something. The cup represents the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament world was a world of great sacrifice. Animals would be cut in half and the blood would be spilled and, and two people making a promise would walk through it together and it was, it was gruesome is what it was. But the idea in an Old Testament promise is that as you walk through that blood, you would say, let this be done to me if I fail on my side of the promise. Jesus, when he bled out on the cross, Jesus was making the once and for all covenant promise. He said, look what's been done to me that you may be made right. The sin required a sacrifice and I'll take it all on. I'll take every last bit of it. And he held the cup aloft to his friends at his last supper and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, the new promise. No more walking between the cut animals. This is the promise. That my blood will be shed for you and for all that sins may be forgiven. And so if you walk in here broken saying, God couldn't love me if he knew what I'd done. God wouldn't love me if he knew my habits. God wouldn't love me if he knew what I was up to in my life. Jesus argues with you and he says, I loved you long before you even thought about that. I loved you enough to die for you. So in a moment, as we begin to worship, I'm going to invite you as a follower of Christ to come forward and remember to take the bread and dip it in the cup or take the little single serve element, however you want to do it. But remember what it costs, the God's generosity for you to invite you in the family. And if you're here today and that's not you yet, you go, I'm not sure I'm in that family. I'm worshiping something less. Your prayer is this. God, I want to worship you and you alone. I want my life to be about you. I want my time to be about you. I want my everything to be about you. And when you pray that, when you say, Lord, I want you in my life, and you come to this table, you receive the bread, the brokenness on your behalf. You receive the blood, the sacrifice on your behalf. When you receive that and you follow Christ, you're on your way to finding the flourishing that God lays out. I'd love to invite you to stand now as Greg leads us. And over the next couple songs, make your way to the table.